You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Well, hey, good morning. morning. Want to encourage you, if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, If you're new with us, we launched a series a few weeks ago titled, When God Builds a Church. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians all the way through the early part of uh, December as we look forward to a Christmas series then. But a few weeks ago, our leadership pipeline gathered for our fifth session as we've been moving through. We got a great group and learning a lot. And one of my favorite parts of the leadership pipeline is hearing leadership lessons from our people. And it's just been fun from how rubber bands can teach us about leadership to people's work experiences. It's just been super fun. But a question was asked last uh, session, uh, how would you define leadership? If you could only use one word to define leadership, what would that word be? So I'm just going to give you a moment to let that germinate and see what you think. One word to define leadership. I'm curious. I'm going to share four. Three that came up in our meeting, one I'm going to introduce today. The first one that seemed very apparent to all of us is servanthood, right? Leadership is servanthood. If you Google leadership, biblical leadership especially, you're going to see John 13, washing people's feet. That's the epitome of leadership. Jesus humbles himself, so much so where Peter says, man, Lord, not me. You can't do this to me. That's too humiliating. And then remember what Jesus said? Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. And Peter is the aha moment. Well, then wash from head to toe. He, he got it. Way to go, Peter. Uh, so servanthood was probably dominant. The second one was influence. This is my favorite word for leadership. I believe leadership is influence, right? Uh, But we talked a few weeks ago that it could go both ways. You realize there are positive leaders and not so positive leaders. I hope you realize the Bible has uh, both people to admire, learn from them, but also people to not so much so admire. A book has been written, The Dark Side of Leadership. And there is a dark side scripturally. We've seen that. And so we have that. The third one that popped up was shepherding. I love that, and that really comes from a book we're studying through Leadership Pipeline. It's Gene Getz's book on elders and leaders. Uh, Great book. About 35 of our people have read that book, including our elders. It's just a nice primer for leadership. But it's predicated upon 1 Peter 5. Peter, a fellow elder, says, I appeal to you, brothers, to shepherd the flock of God in which he has made you an overseer. Shepherding is the caring, the nurturing, the shepherd to the sheep. Remember, the 99 are left where the shepherd pursues the one, uh, out of love, out of care, out of nurture. But the... uh, Leadership word that I want to introduce this morning that uh, is relatively new, really hasn't popped up on my radar screen over the years, is values-driven leadership. How many of you in the corporate world have tapped into values-driven leadership? I'm just curious. Yeah, I'm seeing Dave. 
So there are um, movements in that direction. As you know, our church has pursued this whole uh, culture understanding for elders, for staff, for church. What is going to be our culture? And so uh, what's going to be the values that we uh, express in our leadership culture? And so why values? Values are the non-negotiables, right? Values are the hills that you stand on and you'll die for something. Values demonstrate our passions, our dreams, what we think about uh, morning, noon, and night. And so for the next three weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to tap in to the Apostle Paul's heart for biblical leadership from the vantage point of what Paul truly valued. What were his non-negotiables, if you will? And so we've already discussed over the past few weeks that in chapter 1, Paul viewed the Thessalonian church as a model church. Please don't miss that. It was a church to mimic. We looked at that word a few weeks ago. Um, a beautiful word. Pattern yourself after this church. It's an example. And by the way, folks, this is the only church in the New Testament that's called a model church or an example church. How remarkable. But here's the kicker. As I studied this uh, passage, the first 16 verses of chapter 2, there was kind of an aha moment because Paul opens chapter 2 with great tension. And I want to demonstrate that tension to you. And Jim, we're going to jump ahead to 1 Thessalonians 2.1. If you have your Bibles, look there. I want to show you something. Here's how he opens chapter 2. After building him up, celebrating a model, an exemplary church, he says this. He says, for you yourselves know, brothers, he's writing to believers, that our visit with you was not without results. And that's a curious phrase there. Why does Paul bring up this idea that, hey, our three weeks, remember, three Sabbaths, then he got booted out by the mob? Remember the thugs that chased Paul out of town? But why does he say this, this thing that our time with you, that month spent in ministry, was not without result? The NIV translated, translates it, I think, a little bit better. The NIV says, you know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. That's a weird statement to me. And so as I opened chapter 2 and prepared for this week, I was like, man, I was just really redirected in my thinking about what's going on in this chapter. Why would Paul have to somewhat give an apologetic to defend his ministry of a month, three Sabbath days, and, and say, was it a failure, guys? What's the deal? What's he hitting at? This is the model church, remember? But something's going on. Now, the Greek word for failure is real interesting here. It means hollow, empty, wanting in purpose. So some, a subset, I'm certain not all, were viewing his ministry differently than it really was. They thought it was hollow, they thought it was shallow, that it didn't have purpose, meaning that somehow his time in Thessalonica really was in vain, had no value. And so I had to ask the question, why is he writing this? And I could only come up with one conclusion, the commentary somewhat validate this, that there was a misunderstanding of what kingdom ministry really is like. 
Now, you got to remember, this is an infant church. This is a baby church, right? Peter talks about, hey, as newborn babes crave pure spiritual milk. Why? So you can grow up. So Paul's going to write this chapter to disciple, to help him think differently about his ministry there. Now, to add salt to the wound, just for clarity, so you see maybe the tension between some in the church of Thessalonica and the apostle, I want to show you verse 3 of chapter 2. He says this, for exhortation didn't come from, notice the words, from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. What the heck? Why would Paul have to write such a defense, if you will? I came here with the gospel, the pure gospel, and you're thinking it's impure. I came here with truth, and you think it's error. I came here to lovingly share with you the good news that saves souls, as Greg beautifully illustrated in our call to worship, and you think I'm here deceiving you? Do you see the turn of events from chapter 1 to chapter 2? It really just kind of flipped me, and so I went in a total different direction than I was originally uh, planning for these three uh, weeks ahead. Now, again, one more picture, just so you know I'm not off track. Look at verses 5 and 6. Paul, again, somewhat apologetically saying, for we never use flattering speech. Okay, we're not coming here as orators. We're not coming here to persuade you with our oratory uh, abilities. We never use flattering speech, as you know, or had, notice this next phrase, or had greedy motives. We weren't coming here to make money. This wasn't about us. This was about God and your salvation through faith in Christ. And then he has to say, guys, if you don't believe me, look up. God is our witness, and we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or for others. Oh, my goodness. The list of criticisms, indictments, were heavy against the Apostle Paul. Folks, this isn't lightweight stuff. This is pretty serious stuff. Why? It has nothing to do with the Apostle Paul or his name. You know what it has everything to do with? The gospel of Jesus Christ taking root in Thessalonica, bearing much fruit for the kingdom and glory of God. But here's the point. If Paul goes down, so does the gospel. Do you realize that? If he's a deceiver, if he's teaching an error, if he has selfish ambitions, guess what? The gospel's no good. So Paul has to rescue their thinking because their biblical worldview was upside down. It was distorted. It was misunderstood. And so again, I think... In a beautiful way, what does the Apostle Paul do? He does what he's always done. He comes in, yes, as a pioneering missionary, right? Planting churches. This guy was all in. But he also comes in putting on a pastor's hat. I want you to know something. First 16 verses and beyond are very, very pastoral from the Apostle Paul. The metaphors that he uses to describe his heart for the church are just beautiful. And we're going to see those metaphors. It shows what Paul valued. It shows that his leadership was driven by non-negotiables that are kingdom-like. And so Paul's going to share with us his heart, and we're going to get closer to home. 
And so if you have your Connect card, as always, I encourage you to take notes, and I want to share with you the blessing. Uh, what's interesting today, this is rare, especially for those of you who are guests, there's only one point to the talk today. That's rare. Can anybody say amen? That wasn't like a real amen. Anybody say amen? Amen. amen. One point, but it's hopefully a good point. So here's the blessing. Each one of us can lead biblically by emulating the values of the Apostle Paul. And so, yes, one point. Um, I'm sad today. Joe Quick was going to be with us from the Friendship Center. Many of you know who Joe is. We've partnered with him over the years. We were going to interview Joe regarding this topic, but we still will talk about our partnership this coming fall. So here's the value. I know there's two values on your Connect card, but uh, we're just going to get to one. So value number one, lead valuing commitment, not comfort. And folks, that should go without saying in the Bible, right? If there ever was an individual committed, it was Jesus, right? He's in Gethsemane, and it's a remarkable place. And he's sweating drops of blood. He's crying out to his father. Father, if it's possible, let this cup of death, Calvary, pass by. Nevertheless, your will be done. Jesus knew his kingdom calling was not about comfort. It was about one thing. Fulfilling the will of the Father. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2, Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's about commitment, not comfort. Now, would you agree in America we like our comfort? We like our comfort foods? I don't even know what that means. I just like food and I eat it. What's a comfort food? Potato chips? Is that a comfort food? Yeah? Okay. Good. So, to our passage. Let's look at verses 1 and 2, and we'll talk a little bit about um, his commitment and who cares about comfort. And this is for real. So, Paul says, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our visit with you was not without result or not in vain. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and we were treated outrageously in Philippi. Notice what he's saying. He's going back to go forward. As you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. Notice where he goes to give his apologetic. He goes back to go forward. He's basically saying, listen, you know what happened in Philippi. You know how we were treated. You know how we were opposed. And if I was somewhat trying to uh, have some sort of self-centered ministry among you, I wouldn't even be here right now, guys. Do you remember what happened in Philippi? Think through Paul's ministry there. Paul went to Europe not on a vacation, okay? This was a calling, remember? Acts 16, Open doors, open hearts. We talked about that as we went through the book of Acts. He gets this vision. It's called the Macedonian call. He shows up. Three people come to faith in Christ from different people groups. Remember? Lydia, the professional woman, a seller of purple, comes to faith in Christ. The church gets birthed there. She gets baptized, her and her family. A demon-possessed gal gets freed. And literally, if you don't mind me using, all hell breaks loose. Right? And the people who owned her and used her for selfish gain started a riot, arrested Paul. And folks, they flogged him, 
Study flogging sometime. This is serious stuff. They literally ripped his back apart with a whip that was made of leather, metal, glass, bone. It hurts. And he's thrown into prison, him and Silas. Remember what happened? It's midnight hour. They're praising God. They're singing hallelujah to the Lamb. They somehow embrace that the gospel will come with great opposition. An earthquake takes place. The Philippian jailer has an aha moment. What must I do to be saved? He comes to faith in Christ, gets baptized, and the church is birthed there. But guess what happens at Philippi? After getting beaten up, thrown in prison, they basically have to get out of Dodge. And the Thessalonians knew it, or at least some. And so they're critical and saying, are you kidding me? Is this how this new teaching, is this how the gospel of Jesus Christ advances with blood, sweat, and tears? And the answer from Paul is yes. Why? Because we get to share in the sufferings of Christ. Jesus shed tears. Jesus dripped drops of blood. Jesus gave his life a ransom for many. Friends, that is the gospel. Now, I know it's an upside-down gospel. I know it's an upside-down kingdom, but that's the reality in which you and I live. So here's the deal. Biblical paradigm, what is biblical leadership? It's not about comfort. It's about commitment. If Paul wasn't committed like Jesus, there would have been no gospel advancing to Europe. And by implication, folks, the gospel to America came from Europe. What a gift that Paul leaned in to commitment and didn't worry so much about comforts. I learned a lesson about comfort a number of years ago. We uh, were invited to go to Mali, West Africa. I try to remind people this isn't Maui, Hawaii. I've been there once a week, second honeymoon, cool place to go, encourage you. Mali's different. It's the size of the state of Texas in West Africa. Half of it is the Sahara Desert. It is hot, very hot. Don't go in the summer. That was my first trip. So picture this. It's 2007. I was invited by a missionary from what's called the International Mission Board just to go on a vision trip. Sure, let's go to Africa. Let's check out this place. Well, guess what? We were welcomed into the village by the chief, but we had no place to stay, no lodging. And uh, the day started early from Bamako. We drove into the village of the bush, full day, meeting some of the locals, the chief, welcomed by the elders, drinking too much tea. Tea is a custom in Mali. Uh, there's as much sugar as there is tea. So if you have three or four teas, you're lit up for life. That's what happened. So picture this. It's midnight, right? And let me show you our sleeping arrangements. This is our first trip in Mali. Sorry for the funky picture. That was the only one I could find. Um, but here we are, it's midnight, and we're, we're going to bed. It's just four of us, two gals, two guys, and kudos to the gals, because if you think it's hard for men, it's 10 times harder for the women, okay? And I won't go into details. So it's about midnight, and I'm laying there. It's 100 degrees, no wind, got my boxers on, trying to get to sleep. And <clears throat> next thing you know, it just seems like all the babies just wanted to cry. As a guy, you know how that works, right? <clears throat> You just don't enjoy that. I had my day. We had three twins, three in diapers. I remember that day. So it's like, the village is crying. Go to bed. 
right? Then all of a sudden, I have no idea why, never did get an answer. All of a sudden, I hear this, think, think. Some blacksmith is doing his work at night. I shared with Greg Argenbright why during the day it's too hot. They work in the morning, they work in the evening. So he's doing his think. I'm like, stop it. So then, you know, I'm in and out of sleep, just trying to get some rest, full day. And about three in the morning, didn't really check the time, a flock of goats, just picture a flock of goats, just like, just I know that isn't even close, but a flock of goats pushing through there, and they're butting up right to the tent. So I'm awake, and I'm just really frustrated. So the dudes are pushing their noses into the tents, and if you've ever seen these little bug tents, they're very flexible. They kind of go in and out. So you got a couple goats. I made a fist. I literally did. I wanted to punch a goat in the nose. I was like, well, thanks, Lord. He didn't. He kind of kept me back. The goats made their way. The shepherds were gone. It's about 3.30 in the morning, and I'm just like, I got up. I'm sitting there alone in this village in no man's land in Mali, West Africa, in a chair, and I'll never forget. You know what I was doing? Pouting. You ever pout as an adult? Sean, way to go. You're my man that you could be honest enough to say. It was like the stupidest thing. Here I am sitting there, four in the morning in Mali, beautiful sky. I mean, the sky was lit. You're at the equator. You know, kind of comfortable. Temperature went down a little bit. But I'm pouting, and I'm thinking, why in the world did I come to this stupid place? And guess what the aha moment was? I should have known that already. Yeah, how moment was real simple. Keith, if you came to Mali for comfort, you're in the wrong place. There is nothing comfortable about ministry in the bush in Mali, West Africa. And I mean nothing, zero. Take my experience for the gals times 10. That's how difficult it was. Take Paul's experience compared to this times 1,000. Okay, we weren't flogged. We weren't thrown into prison. We weren't kicked out by mobs and thugs. We didn't have jealous Jews chasing us down. The gospel advanced. During that two-week trip, over 20 adults came to faith in Christ and were baptized. It was a beautiful thing. The church was born in Sunja, and here I am the first night pouting. <laughs> so the lesson is this, folks. It's not about comforts. It's about commitment. Now, can I encourage you? Let's bring it home. You might think, okay, that's there, that makes sense. Paul and Philippi, Thessalonica, that makes sense. What about the local church? Do you think it's any different here in America, in the West? Folks, the reason ministry is difficult is singular. We have an enemy, the devil, who prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Satan hates when he sees the gospel advancing, hates it. Therefore, what's true there is true here. It just is packaged differently. It's not bug tents and goats and 100 degrees and you can't sleep, but it's true warfare. It's hard. It's difficult. Ministry has tension, and that's the reality. A few months ago, just overheard a conversation with one of our congregants, just sharing with a staff member, and the congregate said this, and I quote, you did not sign up for this, did you? 
And what the congregant was referring to was the tensions, the struggles, the challenges in kingdom work. Step out of kingdom work, guess what? Your life will be comfortable, right? Step into kingdom work, guess what? You now have an adversary who prowls around. Prior to me coming to faith in Christ, guess what? It was comfortable. Sin is pleasurable, but it catches up to you. It has its own consequences. But you enter the kingdom of light, and the kingdom of darkness continues to push back. That's what's happening here in the church of Thessalonica. And Paul's trying to encourage them for the values of biblical leadership, trying to help them understand how the gospel truly advances. And if you don't capture that, let me give you Paul's final word to his disciple in the faith, Timothy, who's now pastoring in the city of Ephesus, where we get the book of Ephesians, world-class city at the time, 250,000 people, a lot going on in Ephesus. Paul writes to Timothy these words to demonstrate right now for us, Westwind Church, the church, Jesus Christ, the ministry is difficult. Here's what he says. He says, Timothy, share in suffering. Just hold on to that phrase right now. Timothy, you're shrinking back. The persecution's high. It's getting difficult to be a Christian. Many are suffering and blood is being shed. Timothy, stay the course. Share in suffering. Then he gives three metaphors. Let me share them with you real quickly. As a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the recruiter, I don't like the recruiter. I like the translation that says his commanding officer. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to get a share of the crops. Consider, Timothy, what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding and everything. You know what Paul's doing? Paul's cheering Timothy on. Timothy, don't shrink back. Ministry is difficult. But remember three things, Tim. Number one, remember how soldiers enter the military. They go all in. They are fully dedicated to commanding officer. My brother, Kevin, oldest brother, went into the Navy at age 18, retired as a lieutenant commander. I watched him for 40 years give his life to the military. Guess what? All in. Twice he had to leave his family to be deployed with the 6th Fleet for six months. Gone, disappeared. Military has you all in. Paul's saying, hey, if you're a soldier in this army, if you're fighting, go all in. Secondly, what about the athletes? Well, we know a lot about Olympians, right? Fully dedicated and fully disciplined to do one thing. Metaphorically, run the race well. The marathon, of course, is the metaphor we use at Westwind. Folks, you might be on mile marker 12, mile marker 18, mile marker 20. You might feel like you're hitting the wall. Go to the Boston Marathon. I forget what they call it, Heartbreak Hill. If you've ever heard about it, type it in. It's kind of crazy. It's mile marker 21. You hit Heartbreak Hill. Man, you're just ready to die. You can't think. You can't breathe. You can't live. You just want to stop. Keep going. Push back Heartbreak Hill when the going gets tough. And then the farmer... You guys know better than I in Iowa. I'm a city boy. My lawn was concrete. I liked it that way. But the farmer does what? Full day. Up early, to bed late, and goes all in. That's the picture 
And folks, it's a beautiful picture. Let me show you one more aspect of Paul's commitment. We'll get to this a little later. But look at verse 9 of chapter 2. You want to talk about the hardworking apostle Paul? Here's what he says. For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers. Notice this next phrase, working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We preach God's gospel to you. You know what he's saying? I worked when I came to Thessalonica. I was a tent maker. I paid my way. I paid the bills. I put food on the table. We already discovered that in Acts. Where not only that, he provided for his teammates. When did he preach? Well, Acts says it was very clear on three Sabbath days. And I think Paul preached whatever he could, even if he was making tents. But here's the deal, folks. You want to talk about a 40-hour week? Paul knew nothing about it. There was no such thing as a 40-hour week for Paul the missionary pastor. I worked morning, noon, and night so I wouldn't be a burden to you, so I wouldn't have to rely on you. I gave everything during the day so I could preach Christ when opportunity arose. Friends, that's quite remarkable. And so we've already seen in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, that Paul reminisces about his trials in Philippi. And he said, you know, it was hard, but so what? We're all in. Then he goes to Thessalonica, right? And he says, after Philippi, as we were radically abused, we still came here doing what? Boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? That's our mission. That's our value. That's what we count as a non-negotiable. We're not so much concerned about our comfort, but we're committed to one thing, preaching Christ and him crucified. And so, look at verse 2. How did this all happen? And I think the answer is here. Paul says this. As you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. Folks, this is empowerment by God. This is spirit and word infused. This is not by my might, not by my strength, but by God's spirit do we do his work. He's emboldened, he's empowered. The Greek word there has much to do with courage. Think about it. To have courage to, to fight the good fight of faith. And courage, of course, is part of encourage, where God encouraged him, emboldened him to keep going, to fight the good fights. We saw that in Joshua's story, if you recall, and I won't camp there too long, but in Joshua chapter 1, the young man who followed in the footsteps of Moses, do you think his work uh, was cut out for him? Do you think his ministry was difficult? Four times in Joshua chapter 1, what does God say to Moses? Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous in the Lord. Be strong and courageous in taking God's word in, meditating on it day and night, living it morning, noon, and night. Then you'll be emboldened and empowered when the going gets tough. James Allen said this, and I quote, you will never do anything worthwhile in this world without courage. Can I add one thing? 
courage that comes from God. That's what it means to be emboldened by God. That's what it means to be empowered by God. Folks, this fight of faith cannot be done on our own strength. It's just an impossibility. So in closing, I have a few questions from the life of the Apostle Paul. wonder if you've ever thought about it. Number one, do you ever think Paul got discouraged or demoralized in ministry? We went through the book of Acts. We learned a lot. Now we're reviewing Philippi. We're reviewing Thessalonica. Was Paul a superhero as a Christian or was he a real guy just like you and I? Folks, he was made out of the same stuff, right? I'm sure he got discouraged. I'm sure there were times where he just like, you know, down and out, demoralized. Maybe that's why he wrote in this letter, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore, please hear me, folks, because this is important application right now. Encourage one another, build each other up as you are already doing. How did Paul press forward? Certainly with the strength of God, certainly by the word of God, but I also believe by the encouragement of others. So when he got knocked down, there were others there to pick him up. Question number two, do you ever think Paul wondered if it was all worth it? Again, I don't think he's a superhero. I think he had great theology, don't get me wrong here, but I imagine there was times of doubts and wonderment man, I'm giving a lot and there's so many surprises, getting blindsided left and right. Well, let me show you something from 1 Thessalonians 2.19. I believe with all my heart he believed it was worth it. Listen to what he says. He says to the church, for who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Paul says it's absolutely worth it. Why? Your lives have been changed by the glorious gospel. And when Jesus Christ returns, I get to stand and say, Lord, thank you that I had the privilege to be a part of this joy and this crown. Final question. Do you ever think Paul felt like throwing in the towel? And friends, I know the answer to that because I see it all the time in Christendom. It's hard. Timothy, who pastored Ephesus, who was part of Paul's team, felt like thrown in the towel. When you read the writings of the Apostle Paul, you do get a sense of his pastor's heart. And here's what he says in Galatians, and it's a powerful thing. He says, so we must not get tired of doing good for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, we must work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of the faith. I think sometimes Paul preached to himself. I really do. You know, as a pastor, you don't write sermons for yourself, but I can tell you this. These truths filter through you all the time. I think Paul writes out of experience. I think he knows the experience on the other end. He's just trying to shepherd the sheep. Keep going. Press on. It's not about comfort. It's about commitment. And yes, the going's going to get tough. Be emboldened by your great God and Savior. Take courage in him. Lean on his word. Stay the course. Be the hardworking farmer. Be the soldier who goes all in. Be that disciplined 
athlete who says, I'm running and I'm running. And even if I feel like I'm hitting heartbreak hill, I'm gonna keep going by God's strength. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the clarity of Scripture. We thank you for truth, Lord, because when we know truth, it'll set us free. And so we stand in awe of you this morning. Father, what a testimony to the genuineness of faith, the Apostle Paul. After all he experienced, he kept saying yes. He kept going all in. He kept being an encouragement to others, even to work as he shared the gospel. So, Father, help us to grab hold of these values of what it means to lead out biblically. May it be so corporately as a church, may it be so individually, Lord. Make us, Father, we pray, disciples who press on, who finish well. In Jesus' name.